0: my hometown of st louis is an awesome baseball town for those of you who know my story you know that story you know the impact of the st louis cardinals and jack buck and baseball on my life you also know it's a phenomenal hockey town and for those who have read the book on fire or know the impact of the st louis blues not only in this community but also on a little boy named john o'leary you know that it's a hockey town as well What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drum roll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity and inclusion. Keeley Company's CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more
1: fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Today's guest is an Emmy Award winning journalist and reinvention expert with a successful television career that spanned 28 years. Some of Liz Brenner's most memorable highlights might involve interviews with cultural icons like Oprah Winfrey or President Barack Obama. She might be remembered for working in Boston on the primary news desk during moments such as September 11th, or the Boston Marathon bombing. We'll certainly be discussing those major moments during this conversation today, but I'm more interested in the journey that led to that news desk, that led to those news stories, that led to her understanding that what we've done in our past doesn't have to define at all what we are liberated and capable of doing in our future. Liz has a remarkable story. She started off as a high school music teacher and then took a risk, and then another one, and then another one, and she's gonna be unpacking those with us today. This conversation, my friends, it's gonna give you permission to discover your authentic self. It's gonna remind you that no knowledge, obstacle or experience is ever wasted. And I think it's gonna reinstill in all of us that the best of our journey remains ahead of us. I'm gonna encourage you on the front side of this one to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, get ready to open up your mind, your hearts, as I introduce to you my friend and soon to be yours, her name is Liz Brunner. Liz, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here, John. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it.
0: Like we were talking before we hit record, it is my honor. I'm so fortunate to not only know you, have you as a friend now, but to have read your book. Before we unpack those things and so many of the lessons you've already taught me, if someone randomly runs into you, not in Boston, because I think most people up in Boston know you from other opportunities, mm-hmm. if they bump into you in an airport and you're just kind of, you know, mosing around and they say, Liz, brother, it sound familiar. What do you do, Liz? How do you respond to that question today? What do you do, Liz?
1: It's funny you should say that because what often happens is people may look at me and they think I might look familiar, but it's my voice that they say they recognize sometimes first and they're trying to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And so it's really fun. And I will often ask them, where where are you from? Let's start with that because if they're from Boston and they say, you look so familiar, you sound so familiar. I will ask them if they had ever watched channel five because I was on the air here at ABC and Boston WCBB for 20 years, 28 years in the industry. But if people say, you know, who are you? What are you doing now? I love to say, well, that was my old life. My new life is that I'm teaching other people how to tell their stories.
0: Well, we're going to unpack why you're doing that and the story that you have to share, because I think it's going to elevate ultimately not only what you've done in your life, what you've learned, but what we can accomplish in our lives going forward so the the ability that we have to own our story, it matters. In in preparing for this conversation, I was going to start in either Connecticut or Hawaii, and you understand the answers to both of those. I'd like to start even farther back, though. We're going to start in Japan. Talk about Russell and talk about Mary. How do these two individuals meet randomly halfway around the world?
1: Well, the two people you're talking about are my mother and my father. My mother is was from India, I should say is from India, she's still alive. And my father was from New York, but his family was living in Japan at the time. And my mother was 18 years old, coming to America from India on board a French freighter. And she and my grandmother, her mother, were the only two women on board that French freighter full of French sailors. (laughs) My grandmother was there to chaperone. And the reason that they were taking the French freighter was because it was the, the least expensive way to get to America. My mother was going to go to Oberlin College. Now, they stopped in Japan, and it so happens that the two grandmothers knew each other from their missionary work. So that's how my father and my mother first met. However, my father was engaged to another woman <laughs> when he met my mother. And somehow or another, I still don't have this story straight. I've got to ask my mom about this. But they re-met four years later on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. And my father obviously didn't marry that woman. And here I am now. How many ever years later, the rest of the story.
0: Let's talk about mom and dad for a moment. Uh, what 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 did you learn growing up from your sweet father?
1: Oh my gosh! I think in many ways, John, he was a Renaissance man. He loved life. He loved everything. He was into wine. He was into birds. He was into fish. We had an aquarium. He was, you know, he everything that he did, he did with exuberance if Mm. you will he wanted to learn everything and and we talk about wine at one point in time he had 750 pounds of zinfandel grapes flown in from california to illinois and he set up this whole winemaking thing down in our basement and we're watching the world series and plucking grapes off of their stems now the wine was terrible (laughs) when we eventually tried it yeah that's right And then he built an aviary. I mean, he just, whatever he did, he did with exuberance. And you're the first person that's ever asked me that question about what did I learn from him? And I really think my love of life, my love of living life, I do believe came from him.
0: You wrote a bit about dad. You wrote extensively about mom. I think you even dedicated the book to your mom. Your father taught you to be a renaissance woman and to love life. (laughs) What did mom teach you?
1: Oh, what didn't she teach me? She truly is one of the wisest women I know. She's very spiritual, very religious, but she truly was, is so wise. And there were so many lessons that we learned from her growing up about how to connect, how to be fully present. And I remember there were so many times where we felt dad wasn't around. He was a minister and he really wasn't around. He was so involved in the church. Mom always made time for us, always, every single day. And so many lessons from mom.
0: Another woman you wrote a lot about, Grandma. Talk Mm -hmm. about Grandma Chaco.
1: Well, Grandma Chaco is my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, and talk about an amazing woman. She was a very serious woman, however, I might say that. Well, Grandma Chaco was a doctor. She had many different doctorates, and she also started a first leprosy colony in India. And so just a very rich heritage from her and also my grandfather. But Grandma Chaco's quote, which was really the impetus for the book, John, which is no knowledge is ever wasted, dot, 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 in the good Lord's sight. (laughs) That's the entire quote. And it's so true. No knowledge is ever wasted. And that was the first title of the book. I think I just said that a moment ago, but it was so interesting that how that quote in particular began to resonate more so as an adult for me, as I continue to make some career transitions and discovered that I was taking all these life experiences and connecting the dots and found these themes Mm -hmm. and patterns that were running through my life and how the skill sets that I had learned in every single job Wow, that quote just really began to resonate for me.
0: So before we get into your professional journey, which is exhausting, we are going (laughs) to get our shoes on and run through it here in a moment. I I, want to talk not about Connecticut, not yet about Illinois, somewhere in between those two. You lived in Hawaii for almost a decade. Talk about what life was like, because most of our listeners, if they've been there, they're wowed to have been there for a week. Very few of our listeners live there. In paradise you did for about a decade what was that like for you
1: so many people ask me what was it like growing up in hawaii i said i didn't know anything else right. <laughs> i didn't know anything differently but it was a wonderful way to grow up because everybody was a different nationality if you think there were japanese there were chinese there were hawaiian there were filipino there were african americans there were caucasians white howlies, as we called them and i technically am a white Howley. But when we were growing up on the beach, because my mother was from India and we were so very dark skinned and we're sitting in the sun, they would come up, the tourists would come up, oh, can we take a picture of your beautiful Hawaiian family? And my mom just got tired of saying, well, they don't have a drop of Hawaiian blood in them, but sure, go ahead. So it was a wonderful way to grow up and experience a lot of different cultures. And that's the thing I loved the most about it. Of course, I didn't really realize it until I came to Lily White Peak in Illinois at the age of 10. Talk about a culture shock.
0: It's important to understand you came from Hawaii and this wildly diverse background, and then you move to an area that is radically different, that's going to change your experience in that place. So why move to Pekin, Illinois? What was that like for you once you got there?
1: My father was a minister, and he felt really called to this church. And I remember the day that we were sitting around the dinner table, and after dinner, Dad said to us, Well, kids, we're we're going to be moving. And we're all like, Wow, this is cool. And we're going to be moving to the state of Illinois. Wow, we're going to the mainland. And that means we're going to be leaving Hawaii. What do you mean we're going to leave Hawaii? And then the tears started flowing down. We're like, we're going to leave Hawaii. But it was, it was a major culture shock at the age of 10. But that's why we moved to Hawaii, was because my dad felt such a calling to this new church.
0: So good for dad. He's got the call into the new church, but he's got a wife, a daughter, and three little boys that he's tugging along for the ride. You, you come from a very eclectic background, and now you find yourself, you know, some of our listeners know where it is. Not everybody could find it on a, on a map, though. Probably you could not have before you moved there. What was it like for you moving into Beacon, Illinois?
1: Well, Pekin, Illinois is sort of the middle to downstate Illinois, so it's kind of right there smack in the middle, and it's a lot of farmland, it's just a very different culture, at least when when we moved there, and there were very few, if any, people that were not white in that community, and so here we are, these brown children, and this brown, dark-skinned mother, and my dad's very white. And we moved to this lily white town where the KKK was known to exist, the Ku Klux Klan. And my godmother was African-American. And when she would come, you know, people in the church weren't sure what to think about this. But because she was my godmother, she respect, you know, they gave her respect. But it was very, very difficult because I felt ostracized. I experienced you know, racism for the first time in my life. I didn't even know what this was. People were calling me a Hawaiian nigger and I'd come home crying going, what, what does this mean? I don't even know what this means, but it, I knew it wasn't good, it hurt. So it was, it was challenging. And, and when I share that story, I know there's so many more people, John, who've experienced far worse, far worse prejudice than I ever did or any of my brothers ever did. But it was hard at the age of 10. You want to fit in. You know what that feels like at the age of nine and 10 with all that you experienced with your burns. You want to fit in and you just don't feel like you do.
0: You struggled with that for quite a while. This, a this long time. desire to fit in for decades it, You know, as you play it forward. As a young woman, though, you're wrestling with this. What allowed you to feel as if you belonged? But when did you find peace? And when did when did you find that calm and that that satisfaction with who you were?
1: This is going to sound strange, but it's only been in the last probably eight to 10 years that I finally don't know if I ever really ever fit in. I don't think I ever really felt like I fit in. I found a way to fit in, but did I feel like it on the inside? I don't think so because I didn't feel like I could truly be myself. It's not that I was inauthentic, but I wasn't allowing who I am at my core Mm. to rise to the surface and be seen by everyone. And that's a difference.
0: It's a profound difference. And here's a woman who spent two decades on air in Boston and years in Tampa and years in Illinois on television. Correct. We felt as if during that whole time, she did not fully fit in. So I want to come back to that in a moment. Not only did you do that, you also are Miss Marigold. (laughs) yes (laughs) and we're going to go way back in time dude what late 1979
1: yeah I think it was 79 I was Miss Marigold and it was a pageant in my town of Pekin Illinois I only entered it because I was going to get a hundred dollar scholarship for school if I won and I knew I was going to have to pay for my education my family was not wealthy and so I entered and I remember when they after they called the first runner up and I'm looking around and I'm thinking well I guess I guess I'm going to be the winner. I just sort of was shocked by that but that launched me into the whole pageant system ultimately as you know from reading the book i became miss illinois and uh, that competed in the miss america pageant and again i did it all for scholarship money
0: talk about this though because you you candidly you don't feel as if you belong you don't feel perfectly beautiful on the inside or the outside And yet you get the crown of Miss Marigold. You go on to get the crown as Miss Illinois and then you compete at this even higher level competition. How do you walk on stage with your shoulders back feeling as if uh, I, I have every right as much as any of these other ladies to compete in this? Go ahead. Act
1: as if, act as if. <laughs> okay. You know, when I'm working with clients sometimes and they talk about, oh, I'm so nervous or I don't have confidence or I don't have this or I don't have that, I say, sometimes you have to just go out there and act as if you do. And it's not that you're being an actor in your life. What you're doing is practicing what you hope you will become.
0: You become hugely successful, you go on to college you major in education or music? Music. Talk, talk about even the passion for music and you become a classically trained singer and eventually you teach high school music.
1: Well, I'd grown up singing from the time I was knee high in the church choir I was always up performing and and our family was always performing. We were we were known as the Von Trapp family of of Pekin, Illinois. We'd go perform in nursing homes and my parents sang and they were in concert choirs and plays and it was just we were always doing that sort of thing. And so that it kind of became expected that we should feel comfortable doing all of that. And I'm not going to say I was uncomfortable but again, act as if this is yes. what was expected. This, was, this is what we do, you know? And when I uh, went to college, part of the reason I chose Lawrence University's Conservatory of Music was because we had a, a choir festival called Mid-State Nine where all the nine school districts came together and Dr. Carl Erickson from Lawrence University's Conservatory of Music was the guest conductor for all of us. And when he bounded on stage and he just was mesmerizing, he had this presence that was unbelievable. I was like, I have to go to school there. And that was the only only school I applied to.
0: You mentioned the Von Trapp family. You you were one of the Von Trapps, not only in church, (laughs) you literally were one of the Von Trapps, you were Maria.
1: I was, I did play Maria. I did uh, play Maria in this. sound about of the music. role of
0: Maria. I know you weren't expecting this probably as you stepped out of the live inspired podcast, but our family are huge sound of music buffs. We love it. So to be with Maria right now, I won't make you sing, but the I hills
1: like- <laughs> sorry, I couldn't, I have to burst into song. Sorry.
0: Cut down <laughs> the drapes, turn on the dresses for the kids.
1: I love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite musicals as well. It's terrific. It's a great show.
0: You also performed in front of the Pope, Pope John Paul II. What was that like in Vatican City?
1: Wow is what it was like. So that at that point in time, I was singing with a semi-professional chorale group called the Park Forest Singers, and we were based outside of Chicago. And we did wonderful concert tours in Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Greece, and also Italy. And we were performing in Vatican Square. And the way that they had us mic'd, John, our voices completely filled the square. And it was amazing. And there was Pope John Paul. And I have a photograph of him sort of blessing me like this. And I'm not Catholic, but I got to say, it's pretty cool when the Pope's like talking to you. (laughs) It was really cool.
0: Well, I'm glad you had that experience and then shared it with us. You are a high school teacher. And it amazes me how you got into media. So would you just share the dichotomy between teaching high school and ultimately finding yourself on air?
1: Well, after two years of teaching high school choral music, I loved the teaching, but I just felt organically, John, deep within my soul, there was something more I was supposed to do. I had absolutely no clue what it was. And so when my contract ended, I left and I worked in retail to pay the bills. And at that time, really the internet didn't exist. So I would go to the library and try and read all these books about, you know, how do you figure out your next career and I was taking all these assessment tests to figure out well, what did I want to do what was I interested in. And I thought about becoming a psychologist I thought about interior design I thought about becoming an architect at one point in time. But when I was Miss Illinois, I had done one television commercial. For the pontiac grand prix which was my favorite car at the time and i also happened during my reign to be able to drive four different models of the grand prix which was pretty much a pretty nice perk and so what happened was i thought i was reading a book called who's hiring who by richard lathrop and he talked about informational interviews i'd never heard of such a thing never heard of such a thing but it gave me an idea i bravely and blindly called up both the nbc station and the cbs station in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which was where I was living at the time. I'll readers digest the story for you. After about six months of conversation with a CBS affiliate, a position was created for me. And I was the community relations liaison. Doesn't that sound impressive?
0: <laughs> Give me a copy.
1: Yes, exactly. And I basically learned everything from the ground up and everything that they asked me to do, even though I had no clue how to do it. We want you to write these announcements, these public service announcements. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. We want you to voice these announcements into the sound booth. Okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. We want you to have your own little talk show now and interview these people coming in. Are oh sure, no problem. And we want you to do the weather. <laughs> Absolute fit, great, let me, I'd love to. I went home and went, what am I doing? And I took a few courses meteorology courses at the University of Illinois I'd read every ounce of wire copy I could get my hands on when I got there and I'd watch the weather channel before I went into just to make sure I was like talking about the right things, but that was my training that was my graduate school john. And I was there for three years, then I went to Tampa, another CBS station, I was there for five years, ended up being the news anchor on the morning news and, and the director of community relations actually started as the director of community relations that's why I went to Tampa for that job. And I was the only female in upper management talk about trying to push through the glass ceiling pretty hard. I was petrified. I'm like, are they going to find out I don't know what the heck I'm doing (laughs) at some point in time? Talk about limiting beliefs and imposter syndrome. I'm like, I've never done this before. I've never been a manager. I don't know how to do this. But I figured it out. And then they asked me to be the morning anchor. And I was wearing two hats. I was wearing both of those, doing two jobs, working 80 hours a week. I was like, you can't do this anymore. And I took myself off the air. And then about a year later, I got the call to Boston and I came to be a correspondent on our news magazine show called Chronicle. And a year later, I again got tapped to be the morning anchor. <laughs> and they wanted me to continue doing Chronicle. So I thought, I've worn, I've worn two hats. I've done two jobs. I can do this. I must have a sign on my back that says, please give me two jobs to do at the same time. And then one thing led to another. And I ended up having, you know, in total, a 28-year career, which is pretty amazing.
0: I mean, listen. We we could spend a lot of time talking about Chronicle. I'm actually pretty fascinated by your work on that show, mm. and I bet it was. I, I'm guessing it. It, probably almost like a highlight.
1: What a Loved blast it. to travel Loved around tell those stories. Well, because it also gave me a way, I always felt this calling to Boston. I couldn't explain why, but I talk about it in the book. So there's a whole theme of Boston in my history, but. I, I just loved being able to learn about New England and meet all these wonderful people and the history that is here. And so it was really fun. I loved being on Chronicle. It's one of my favorite parts of my job at Channel 5.
0: So you get the, the, the job. Ultimately, you get the big job. You are the anchor. The first time that light turns on and you are reading the teleprompter, <laughs> what, what, it, what emotion are you feeling?
1: Which time? <laughs> the,
0: very, for the very first time that the lead desk six o'clock news is now brought to you by you. Like as that thing is about to flip on, I know you say yeah. fake it to make it and, and act yourself into it. And yet there's got to be some anxiety before, uh, before well, the camera came live.
1: I don't remember exactly how it felt when I took over the six o'clock news because I was replacing an icon in the market. And so I had some pretty big shoes to try and fill. But I can tell you, people often will say to me, do you ever get nervous? And I did. There were times when I got nervous because when you're dealing with breaking news, you have to be so present and so focused. You can't even start thinking about nerves at that point. You just have to completely put it aside and be fully present in the moment to be able to deliver whatever content you can share that is accurate, that you know has been confirmed, so that you are are giving the viewing audience what is the most important information they need to know in that moment of time. So you kind of have to put those nerves aside, but oh yeah, I've, I've had my moments of nerves, <laughs> believe me.
0: <laughs> well, individually nerves, but also uh, cultural nerves. You've been part of the, some of the biggest stories of our generation. Yes. On uh, September 11th, Two of the planes left Boston Logan, and you are the lead reporter on the number one channel in Boston. Take us back to that day.
1: Well, that day, I was actually with one of my videographers, and we were going to some voting, polling, something or other in Needham, Massachusetts, which is where the station is located. And en route there, they said, wait a minute. No, we've just learned that there um, has been a man, we believe, from Needham on that American Airlines flight. We want you to go to his home. Here's the address. So we pull up in front of this house. And the first thing I notice is a woman sitting on the front porch. She has tissues in her hand. tears are streaming down her face. And she looks to be about seven months pregnant. And I told my videographer, I said, stay here. Let me go and talk to her. And as I'm walking up to her in this desperate voice, she says to me, do you know anything? Do you know anything? And I had very little that I could tell her. And I just couldn't interview her that day. There was just just no way I was gonna interview her that day. Fast forward to six months later, when we gathered a group of victims' families, my role ended up covering the victims' families. So at six months we brought them together and, and the, the emotion, John, in that studio room that day was palpable. It was so raw. And they're holding pictures of their loved ones in their hands and their tears are streaming down their face and they're, they're playing with their wedding rings. They're not sure whether to leave them on or take them off. We gathered together again at one year, at two years, at three years, at five years And then at the 10 year mark, I invited them to my home because so much had transformed. Some had moved on more easily than others, but it was a time of celebration and what an honor, what an honor to be allowed into their lives the way that I had been allowed.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think the question I'd like to ask involves both being allowed into their lives the sacred space there, mm-hmm. along with the lives of a massive marketplace known as being tough called Boston. You were allowed into their lives for two decades, invited in and mourned when you left. Why do you think you were invited in and that this, this tough audience welcomed you with both arms?
1: First and foremost, I'm a human being before I'm a journalist. And I allowed that humanity, if you will, that authenticity to come through. I also believe that because I'm a really good student of human nature and I owe my parents for that sort of gift, if you will, it allowed me to connect with people, particularly when I would meet them in person or they would see me on TV. And the best compliment I ever got, John, I think, was from someone who said to me, I know sometimes you have to give us really bad news, but somehow hearing it from you, I believe everything's gonna be okay. Mm. Talk about trust. Talk about allowing... You know, I mean, I'm in their homes. I'm in their bedrooms. If they have a TV on in the bedroom, you know, if it's late at night or early in the morning, I was in their kitchens, in their bathrooms. Who <laughs> you knows where I was, right?
0: Well, I watched I watched your final broadcast, and you said some people wake up with me, other people go to bed with me. And exactly, either, so you were in their family, no doubt about it. Was there a reporter or an anchor that you looked up to yourself?
1: Oh, there were so many. I mean, the at Channel Five. I mean, these were award-winning journalists for decades. And we're not talking just they won one or two awards. We're talking Emmys, Edward R. Murrow, I mean, Pulitzers, you name it. And so I looked up to all of them, and it was hard because they all wore, in my opinion, the big J on their chest. And sometimes they let you know they were wearing the big J on their chest, and I didn't have the big J on my chest, okay?
0: So I was a music course, major. Tell us what the big J is. They may not. Big know.
1: J is for journalists. It means that, you know, I they've got the street cred, they've got the journalism degree, they've got the communications degree, they've got the journalism master's doctorate, whatever. I was just a music major. <laughs> but singing. I was sharing stories through song. And as a reporter journalist, I was sharing stories through the spoken word. It's all storytelling. Yeah.
0: What a great opportunity then to pivot into ultimately ultimately your final broadcast. I try to watch as much of you on air as I could getting ready for today. Oh my gosh, I don't know what you it's saw. Awesome. <laughs> The, your look changed throughout the decades and everything changed. But one thing 28
1: remains. 28 years I went from short hair, long hair, short hair, long hair, short hair, long hair. Come on. I bet your, your wife hair, changes her hair.
0: Fantastic. You haven't aged in 28 years. So that 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 I found incredibly impressive and remarkable. God bless you. I chose
1: my grandparents very carefully. You understand that, John.
0: Well, <laughs> okay. I put mine far more poorly. So uh, anyway, we'll come back to that when you and I do a separate interview sometime. Okay. Uh, the only time I really saw you get clearly emotional was when you were getting ready to say goodbye. And that was cool because most of us viewing, <laughs> we know kind of how the game is played when the, when the camera turns off. And we sometimes wonder, does the weather guy actually have pants on or does he always have shorts on below the desk? And like all that kind of stuff. And we wonder: do they really like each other? Are they really having fun? When you signed off, it was very clear to me, you love them. And when they came over to say goodbye and they shook your hand and they kissed your, the side of your head, like this wasn't good riddance. This was, we are going to miss our friend.
1: Well, you're make me cry.
0: <laughs> it was awesome. It was cool to see.
1: Well, you know, 28 years is a long time in the industry, 20 of them at that station and I had grown so much during my tenure in the industry. And really it was only the last couple of years where I found my confidence, if you will. And I remember, and I share this story in my book, Dare to Own You, which is, it's a funny story of when early in my career, and it was at Channel 5, when I, wanted, when I first became one of the anchors there and they brought in this coach consultant and they're reviewing my, my anchor tapes. <laughs> And the the coach says to me, Liz, just be yourself. And I'm like, but I am. (laughs) I was trying so hard to be an anchor. I was trying so hard to be what I thought I should be as opposed to just being me. Mm. And now when I look back, I just laugh. I just laugh because it was in those last couple of years. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to be Liz. (laughs) You know, it's funny when you think about it like that.
0: That's awesome because I think it ties directly into you not only knowing your story, but helping us know ours and own ours going forward. So let, let's make a little bit of a pivot into no longer trying to pretend like we're someone we're not, but ultimately being fully who we are. How, how does one even begin to understand who who we actually are? Like, How do you make that pivot to recognizing maybe I'm not fully genuinely living my life?
1: Mm-hmm. I think time sometimes helps i think experience sometimes the the life's lessons the experiences the ups and downs if we're willing to step back and put ourselves in what i like to call the witness position i didn't coin that phrase but i think it's very appropriate when we're able to step back out of our life and look at our life from the outside and begin to look at those experiences and connect the dots of the themes and the patterns and the lessons, if we're willing to look at the lessons and learn them, then we can begin to own them. And when we begin to own them, then we begin to own who we are Mm. and our authenticity. I'm not saying it's easy, but I believe that's the first step to owning who we are and finding out what that authenticity is about. And it's, it's hard. It's scary sometimes. Again, you want to fit in. We all want to be seen and heard for who we are. But if we don't allow that to come out, how are we going to be loved for who we are?
0: So even unpack that farther, how do we begin to give ourselves the space and the time and then do the work to discern who we really are? We don't have two media jobs. We weren't weren't working 80 to 90 hours, but everybody right now is running. And if you're running, you're not ultimately pausing and embracing the gift of your life frequently. So how do we create the space to embrace who we truly are?
1: I think it begins first and foremost with giving yourself permission to even do so. Because too often, I think we're too afraid to do that. I can't go there. That's too scary. Nope, not going there. So you have to be willing to give yourself permission. And once you give yourself permission, I think it comes down to making the commitment to dig deeper and to dig a little deeper and to dig a little mm. deeper. In the book, at the end of each chapter, I have a section called Time to Reflect with a lot of poignant questions that I've asked myself that I hope the reader will pay attention to will put the time in and ask themselves those questions so that they can begin to go deeper and deeper. And sometimes it takes, you know, professional help. I'm not going to lie. I've had, you know, counseling and therapy along the way. Thank God (laughs) for that. I also believe because I have a faith and I'm very spiritual that when I'm able to connect with whatever you want to call it, God, the divine source, the universe, if you can be quiet enough to listen, you will be guided. Mm. You, will, you will learn who you are.
0: How have you discerned in your life a woman who's made 37 different pivots and a 38th on the horizon when it's time to begin wrapping up the chapter and begin writing a new one?
1: For me, I just felt it organically. I, it just truly was something within my soul. I couldn't explain it. I wish I could explain it, but I just knew deep down there was, there was more I was supposed to do. And, and I also believe that no matter how successful we are, John, no matter how happy we are, no matter how much money we're making, I believe in this day and age, we should all always be thinking about, hmm, what else might I do? How else might I be living my life? How else might I be of service and share my gifts with the world? I have a personal theory, which is that I don't think it's a coincidence that the pandemic happened in 2020. Pre-pandemic, when we heard the numbers 2020, more often than not, we'd think about, oh, I'm at the eye doctor looking at the chart on the wall with the biggie. And can I read the line that says I have 2020 vision? Well, the pandemic in many respects forced us to look at our lives with more clarity. It forced us to ask ourselves, what are my priorities? How am I living my life? Am I aligned? Is my vision aligned with my life? Is my life aligned with my vision? And how do we get there if we're not there? And for Mm -hmm. some people, maybe they were already there before the pandemic, but I do believe if we can take that lesson from this period of time, allow it to be a lesson.
0: You've learned the lesson. Hopefully we are beginning to learn
1: learning. I'm in the classroom of life. I believe, as you say, (laughs) I'm in the classroom of life.
0: What a great place to be, man. I'm going to pull my desk up even a little bit closer to yours, Liz. So for those of us who are also partying in this, in this classroom of life with us, oftentimes we know that it's time to make the pivot.
1: Yeah.
0: Health go deeper into our faith Uh, reposition in a relationship a million different things that we recognize my gosh it is time to start a new chapter and then that fear whispers yeah but you know you're unworthy you're an imposter a million different reasons why but the fear ultimately kicks in for those of us looking toward the next page wishing that we had the uh the ability to take the next right step toward it but we're just at this moment unable or too fearful what advice might you give us
1: Well, whether it's by choice that you're going to pivot or by circumstances that you're going to pivot, do not let fear stand in your way. And there's a quote by Robert Shuler that really kept me going when I made the pivot from television to launching my communications company, which is, what would you attempt to do if you knew you would not fail? And for me, If fear was the only thing stopping me from leaving television, that was not a good enough reason, simply was not a good enough reason. I was not going to let fear stand in my way. Mm. It is scary, but this is where I'd like to call myself an intelligent risk taker. (laughs) Hopefully, I've thought through everything as much as I possibly could, because I don't know everything. When you're pivoting, you don't know how things are going to turn out. But if you're making intellectual calculated decisions along the way, yes, there might be mistakes. There are probably gonna be a lot of mistakes, but that's okay. Don't let fear stand in your way. You know, yesterday I gave a speech to, uh, I was the keynote speaker for a major chamber organization in the Western part of Massachusetts. And a gentleman came up to me afterwards and after my speech and he said, you know, I was gonna go this direction for my next chapter But after hearing your story, I'm not going to let fear stand in my way and I'm going to go this direction. It's like icing on the cake.
0: I'm curious, what what was it about the message in Western Mass that you delivered yesterday at this chamber event that allowed a guy who was going to go in one direction to make a 90 or 180 degree turn? So if you could kind of pull back that a little bit, what do you think he heard that allowed him to recognize?
1: I said, I want to challenge you. What would you attempt to do if you knew you wouldn't fail? I wanna challenge you to give yourself permission. I wanna challenge you to say, okay, I'm gonna make the pivot. I'm gonna own who I am. I'm gonna be my most authentic self. I'm gonna go after my dreams and I'm gonna take that next chapter challenge on. And that was the essence of the message that I shared with them. Mm-hmm. What would any of us do? What would any of
0: us do? So I'm curious for our listeners who who want the answer to this question of you, but also for themselves. The woman who played Maria and sang for the Pope and spent 28 years in front of a camera. And then early in the conversation, you said, and just eight years ago, John, I finally embraced the gift and the grandeur of my life. I finally dared to own fully my life. What changed? What allowed you ultimately after... Decades of kind of playing the role of imposter to then fully embrace who you are.
1: I think I'm still on that journey to, to be truthful. I'm still owning who I am. And I think that that will continue as I can continue to transform and create my own next chapters, whatever that may be. But I think what allowed me to do so was when I started working with clients and sharing with them the techniques and the tips and the experiences that I had and how I could help them. And I was using the gifts that I believe that I've been blessed with since birth and have honed all these skills and seeing them succeed. I always see their success before they do, but when they see it, when they feel it, It is the best feeling in the world for me. To me, that's success. And so now as I'm seeing the fact that I'm helping other people be successful, that helped me own more of who I am and and believe that, yes, I do have these gifts. I do have these skills. I can help people. I can be of service. I can contribute. I am of value. Mm
0: -hmm. So I wrote down 47 different quotes, I think, from your book. I'll I'll ask you about two of them right now. Otherwise, we will absolutely run out of time. Quote number one, sometimes being imperfect is more perfect because you are being your best authentic self. One more time. Sometimes being imperfect is more perfect because you are being your best authentic self. What does this mean?
1: Well, that is my quote. Thank you for choosing that one. But it is. Look, none of us are perfect, John. We're all human. We're going to make mistakes. And I know there are perfectionist people out there, and I have some of those tendencies every once in a while. I have to cross the T's and dot the I's. But the fact of the matter is, you know what? We're just human, and we're going to make mistakes. It's okay. Just be you. Just be you.
0: So I mean, I will ask you another question around that response. When you were in media for 28 years and the camera is always on, and when it is not on, is it hard for you to just be you and wear a pair of sweatpants to the store and let your hair drip down and have no makeup
1: No, no. It's funny because I, I, I often go to the store in sweatpants and hair in a ponytail with no makeup on. And even when I was on TV and people would recognize me, I was like, you know what? This is me. This is me. I'm just like you. I put my pants on the same way right. you do every day. Okay. I got to go buy groceries. I'm coming from the gym. Yeah, I'm just me. This is me. And in fact, I would often go into the station without any makeup on intentionally. Tell me why.
0: Let our listeners know why you would do that.
1: Oh, there's so much more about it in the book, but because people have said to me, you're so beautiful. And I'm like, I'm just Liz. Can you just look at me as just Liz? Look, yes, I'm Thank you, mom, dad, grandparents. But And thank you, makeup artists. I know how to do makeup. I know how to wear clothes. I take care of myself, but I'm just Liz. I'm just Liz. I
0: told you before we recorded, I have 46 pages worth of questions. One of them was around porterhouse steaks being your favorite food. (gasps) So although you do take care of yourself, you do have some guilty pleasures, but that's not the question now, just Liz. The, the next question revolves around this quote. You have to choose confidence and you have to choose it daily.
1: Yeah. The confidence barometer goes up and down sometimes. It's, there's an ebb and flow to it. Some days we're like, hey, I'm on top of the world. I'm rocking it. And other days you're like, Ugh. okay, I don't feel my best. It's okay. I choose to be confident. I'm going to choose happiness. I'm going to choose joy. I'm going to choose being confident today even if I have to act like it,
0: mm.
1: I'm going to make that choice.
0: You, as you look back on the resume, have accomplished so many things and most recently best-selling author. So as we wrap up, we were about to move into what we call the live inspired seven. But before yes. we get to two questions, <laughs> number one is why did you write the book?
1: Because I felt compelled to do so, John, there's no other explanation. A lot of people for years had been saying, Liz, you should write a book. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe someday. I don't know what I'd write about. I tried writing it back in the summer of 2019, went off course, stopped writing. And then I picked it back up again last year, April of 2021, when I got connected to Grace Point Publishing and a writing coach who said, I wanna know more about this story. I wanna know more about that story. You do, really? Okay, she said, keep writing. John, the more I wrote, the more I had to say. And the more I had to say, the more I wrote. I truly felt like I was getting downloads from the universe. I I had to write this book. And by the end of July, I'd finished the manuscript. That's pretty quick. It still seems surreal. It really does. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get emotional. I'm very humbled and honored. And I'm proud of myself that I did it
0: one of my favorite acceptance speeches of all time. And my mom will get mad at me for saying this, but Snoop Dogg one time won an award. And he began by saying, I want to thank me. <laughs> and then he goes on and say, like, I want to thank me for waking up early before everybody else. I want to thank me for believing when no one else believed. I want to thank me for working hard. And he goes on and on and on. And so, yeah, we, we do. Our life and comes from God and we are blessed by that truth. And we did have amazing parents and a beautiful grandmother and All these other blessings and mentors along the way and you wrote it and that that is worth celebrating today so congratulations on you writing this worthy book when we read it what do you hope we might receive from it
1: if i can create next chapters anybody can anybody can
0: the book is called dare to own you it rolled out about six months ago and it is absolutely worth checking out. I loved it. I love the author of it. And as we move toward the finish line together, Liz, we do have seven questions that we tether every single conversation together with. So here we go. Bundle them up, get your shoes on, get ready to run with me.
1: Okay, I've got What's my seatbelt on.
0: <laughs> I heard your brother Stu used to pull you along for races. So, Stu, Stu, join us in studio real quick. What's the best or most impactful book you've ever read?
1: Okay, you're going to think I'm sucking up to you, but this is the honest to God truth. I don't do it if I
0: don't do what I think you're about to do.
1: I'm going to do it because I just read your book in awe, your newest book, and I laughed out loud. I cried out loud. I felt like I knew you and that our souls were meant to connect and we were meant to meet. And I felt so inspired and so happy when I was reading it because I felt like it was me also. Wow. And granted, our stories are completely different, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Sorry, it's the truth.
0: I'm you, have to, so you have to accept it. You have thank to accept you. it. <laughs> I'm lousy at taking compliments and I, I, I've never heard that before uh, from a guest. So thank you for saying that. And it means more than you know. And that book, for those who've never read it, Jesus says, let the children come to me. And when he says that it is not about under the age of 11, come on people, over the age of 12, no more. It's around a mindset and a heart and a tenderness and an openness and a playfulness and a joyfulness that we had and that we frequently leave behind. So Liz-
1: Yeah, and it's about the inner joy. And it's why I started ballroom dancing a year ago. Awesome. Was because I wanted to allow that inner joy to rise to the surface.
0: It's not the first time you've been dancing, though. I know you uh, are a heck of a dancer.
1: No, no, this is so much harder. Okay, that's a whole other story. I'm going to do my first dance competition coming up. I can't believe it. Okay, okay, (laughs) next question.
0: (laughs) Next question, it doesn't get any easier, but here we go. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing growing up in Hawaii that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today?
1: You know, it it kind of goes on the theme that we were just talking about is that I think I had an inner joy and I love wonder. I'm very curious. And so I really feel like I mean, I'm I've always been curious, but that's something I love about myself is my curiosity. Now it drives some people a little crazy, but I'm always asking why. I always want to know how something works. So curiosity inner Don't joy. Lose
0: it. It's awesome and attractive and a differentiator. If your home caught fire, the one where you and I are recording this interview in right now and all living things are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, a physical item, what would you return with?
1: I'd do my best to grab all of my journals because I've been journaling for almost 40 years now, and I started putting them on my computer, so I have to grab my computer because a lot of that content is there.
0: What have you received from journaling? It's something I beg our listeners, whether they're in audiences live or podcast, tuning in afterwards, to consider doing in their lives. What have you received from journaling?
1: Well, for one, it can be very cathartic. And for me, it's a way to process. And I, I write very extemporaneously. So whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm feeling, it goes down. And oftentimes I will go back and look at it and I'll like have a, this kaleidoscope moment, something clicks. And that's how I process. I, that's how I learn about myself. That's how I express myself. It's just a way for me to know more of me and own more of me by my journaling.
0: Liz, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous, whether it's Pekin, Illinois, or Hawaii, or in Boston (laughs) or anywhere else around the world, if you could sit on a, a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who do you wish to have that conversation with?
1: The Dalai Lama.
0: Yeah, I know you want to interview the Dalai Lama. Why the Dalai Lama?
1: He's enlightened. You know, he's wise, at least my perception of him is both of those two things. I would want to just learn. I would want to just absorb whatever I could from him, his energy, if nothing else. What's Even your first
0: question be. of the Dalai Lama?
1: <sighs> what does enlightened mean?
0: And I know when you interviewed a guy who I've heard of named Barack Obama, you saved your best for last. What would your final final question of the Dalai Lama be?
1: Ooh, um,
0: they're calling the Dalai Lama away, he's got another meeting. Liz, time for one more. What's, what's your final the, question? What's
1: the biggest lesson he wants the world to know today?
0: Hmm. If you if you could jump into that, robe, what do you think the uh, response might be? What's the lesson we need to learn about the world today?
1: We're all connected. It's all about love. It's all about taking care of another human being. I don't know if that's what he'd say but it's a pretty do good guess think all, at it. I do, I think we're we are all connected. We're all here for a purpose with a reason and if we can figure out what our gifts are and share them with the world that's why we're here.
0: What's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Mm. It's a quote from my mom actually which is the goal of living is to be able to absorb all of the pain of life and lose none of the joy.
0: That's awesome. What does that mean? Oh,
1: life is going to be hard sometimes. Life is going to throw you curveballs. Life is going to be challenging. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> but I don't have to tell any of our listeners today okay. that life is hard sometimes. But if we can learn to rise above those tough times, and, and just know that there is joy out there. There's still joy. There's always something to be grateful for, something to be thankful for. And if we can just find that one little nugget sometimes, that's all we need to cling to for hope. Hmm.
0: Liz, if you could whisper some encouragement into the, the Illinois, Miss Illinois, so you're about age 20, what advice would you give yourself looking back on that young woman?
1: It's all gonna be okay not necessarily easy, but it's all going to be okay. And everything is unfolding for your highest good and trust that. Trust that.
0: Liz Bruner, author, leader, friend. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: I'm going to turn it around. How would you think my one sentence should be?
0: So I'll give a go at it. And then I still will demand an answer from you. So my one sense would be Liz spent a lifetime reporting on the lives of others before she dared to earn, to own her own life. And in doing so, not only elevated her world, but the world itself.
1: And my first response when you asked me that question was that she dared to own who she was. It may have taken a full lifetime, but she dared to own who she was.
0: Well, my friends, she did indeed dare to own who she is and who she was. What a gift it has been. Liz, I want to thank you for following the voice to write the book, to follow where you knew your life was going to ultimately lead next, and for sharing that story with all of us.
1: I am so honored to be with you, John, and grateful for this opportunity, grateful that we have connected, and I look forward to seeing where this new friendship will go.
0: Liz, final question. Where can we learn more about your most recent book?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, It it is, uh, you can just go to lizbruner.com, which is my website. It's right there on the homepage. Uh, Of course, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's on, I forget all the other sites that you can probably get it, but the easiest place is just to go to lizbruner.com and you'll find it right there.
0: Well, lizbruner.com, I want to thank you for joining us on the Live Inspired Podcast. My friends, that is Liz Bruner. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. My friends, like you, I'm always looking for a couple specific takeaways from any conversation, in particular on the Live Inspired podcast conversations. And today's main takeaway for me is this. The woman who was in front of the camera for 28 years, a woman who was on the lead desk in Boston on their number one news station for more than two decades, spent the vast majority of that time uncomfortable in her own skin. She wasn't extraordinarily confident in who she was, how she showed up, how she appeared until just eight years ago. For me, it's Just yet another reminder that just because someone seems like they are all put together, that their family is perfect, their professional career is perfect, the outside life is perfect. So often that's just not the case. Our job then is twofold. Number one, to fall back in love with the life that is uniquely ours. I think too often we wish we had a different complexion, different hair tone, different lifestyle, different paycheck, a million different things that we wish might be ours, rather than just soaking up the fact that this life is a gift, a radical, undeserved, miraculous gift. So start by opening up that gift today. And then secondly, and you heard it clearly in her voice, it's to recognize that everyone else is fighting that same kind of battle. They're struggling with sense of self. They're struggling with how they show up in the world. They're struggling with challenges that none of us can even see. And so if that is true, and I believe it is, our job is to love them well as they are. Love them right where they are, my friends. that's, That's my takeaway from today. If you are looking to take a deeper dive into other experts who've been in front of that camera, who have things to share with us, the lessons learned, the stories shared, and what it means for us. Well, we've interviewed some greats like Richard Louie, Paula Ferris, Joe Buck, Bob Costas, among many, many, many others. You can learn about them and their personal story forward by visiting us at johnoleryinspires.com forward slash podcast. One more time, if you want to learn more about our podcast channel and others who have influenced through their voice, their persona, go visit us at JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash podcast. I want to thank you all for being part of our Live Inspired podcast movement, for being part of our family. We don't take you for granted. We love you as you are where you are. So my friends, thank you for stepping in today for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired.